Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. newsletter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by Narwhals. Tonight, we'll read the next part to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a classic science fiction adventure novel by French writer Jules Verne. In the last episode, Rumors of a mysterious sea creature in the ocean filter back to Europe and the United States in 1866. This unknown monster became very fashionable in the press and caught the public's imagination all over the world. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Preparations were made for an expedition destined to pursue this mysterious narwhal. A frigate of great speed, the Abraham Lincoln, was put in commission as soon as possible. The arsenals were opened to Commander Farragut, who hastened the arming of his frigate. But, as it always happens, the moment it was decided to pursue the monster, 
the monster did not appear. For two months, no one heard it spoken of. No ship met with it. It seemed as if this unicorn knew of the plots weaving around it. It had been so much talked of, even though the Atlantic cable that jesters pretended that this slender fly had stopped telegram on its passage and was making the most of it. So when the frigate had been armed for a long campaign and provided with formidable fishing apparatus, no one could tell what course to pursue. Impatience grew apace when, on the 2nd of July, they learned that a steamer of the line of San Francisco from California to Shanghai had seen the animal three weeks before in the North Pacific Ocean. The excitement caused by this news was extreme. The ship was revictualed and well-stocked with coal. Three hours before the Abraham Lincoln left Brooklyn Pier, I received a letter worded as follows. To Monsieur Aronnax, professor in the Museum of Paris, Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York. Sir, if you will consent to join the Abraham Lincoln in this expedition, the government of the United States will, with pleasure, see France represented in the enterprise. Commander Farragut has a cabin at your disposal. Very cordially yours, J.B. Hobson, Secretary of Marine. Three seconds before the arrival of J.B. Hobson's letter, I no more thought of pursuing the unicorn than of attempting the passage of the North Sea. Three seconds later after reading the letter of the Honorable Secretary of Marine, I felt that my true vocation, the sole end of my life, was to chase this disturbing monster and purge it from the world. But I had just returned from a fatiguing journey, weary and longing for repose. I aspired to nothing more than again seeing my country my friends, my little lodging, my dear and precious collections, but nothing could keep me back. I forgot all, fatigue, friends and collections, and accepted without hesitation the offer of the American government. Besides, thought I, all roads lead back to Europe and the unicorn may be amiable enough to hurry me towards the coast of France. This worthy animal may allow itself to be caught in the seas of Europe, for my particular benefit, and I will not bring back less than half a yard of his ivory halberd to the Museum of Natural History. But in the meanwhile, I must seek this narwhal in the North Pacific Ocean, which to return to France was taking the road to the Antipodes. Conseil, I called in an impatient voice. Conseil was my servant, 
a true devoted Flemish boy who had accompanied me in all my travels. I liked him, and he returned the liking well. He was quiet by nature, regular from principle, zealous from habit, evincing little disturbance at the different surprises of my life, very quick with his hands, and apt at any service required of him, and despite his name, never giving advice, even when asked for it. Conseil had followed me for the last ten years wherever science led. Never once did he complain of the length or fatigue of a journey. Never make an objection to pack his suitcase for whatever country it might be, or however far away, whether China or Congo. Besides all this, he had good health, which defied all sickness and solid muscles, but no nerves. Good morals are understood. This boy was thirty years old, and his age to that of his master is fifteen to twenty. May I be excused for saying that I was forty years old? But Conseil had one fault. He was ceremonious to a degree, and would never speak to me but in the third person, which was sometimes provoking. Conseil, said I again, beginning with feverish hands to make preparations for my departure. Certainly I was sure of this devoted boy. As a rule, I never asked him if it were convenient for him or not to follow me in my travels. But this time the expedition in question might be prolonged, and the enterprise might be hazardous in pursuit of an animal capable of sinking a frigate as easily as a nutshell. Here, there was matter for reflection, even to the most impassive man in the world. What would Conseil say? Conseil, I called a third time. Conseil appeared. Did you call, sir? said he, entering. Yes, my boy. Make preparations for me and yourself, too. We leave in two hours. As you please, sir, replied Conseil, quietly. Not an instant to lose. Lock in my trunk all traveling utensils, coats, shirts, and stockings, without counting as many as you can, and make haste. And your collections, sir? observed Conseil. They will keep them at the hotel. We are not returning to Paris, then, said Conseil. Oh, certainly, I answered, evasively by making a curve. Will the curve please you, sir? Oh, it will be nothing. Not quite so direct a road, that is all. We take our passage in the Abraham Lincoln. As you think proper, sir, coolly replied Conseil. You see, my friend, it has to do 
with the monster, the famous narwhal. We are going to purge it from the seas. A glorious mission, but a dangerous one. We cannot tell where we may go. These animals can be very capricious, but we will go whether or no. We have got a captain who is pretty wide awake. Our luggage was transported to the deck of the frigate immediately. I hastened on board and asked for Commander Farragut. One of the sailors conducted me to the poop, where I found myself in the presence of a good-looking officer who held out his hand to me. Monsieur Pierre Aranax, said he. Himself? replied I. Commander Farragut? You are welcome, Professor. Your cabin is ready for you. I bowed and desired to be conducted to the cabin destined for me. The Abraham Lincoln had been well chosen and equipped for her new destination. She was a frigate of great speed, fitted with high-pressure engines, which admitted a pressure of seven atmospheres. Under this, the Abraham Lincoln attained the mean speed of nearly 18 knots, and a third an hour, a considerable speed, but nevertheless insufficient to grapple with this gigantic cetacean. The interior arrangements of the frigate corresponded to its nautical qualities. I was well satisfied with my cabin, which was in the after part, opening upon the gun room. We shall be well off here, said I to Conseil, as well by your honor's leave as a hermit crab in the shell of a whelk, said Conseil. I left Conseil to stow our trunks conveniently away and remounted the poop in order to survey the preparations for departure. At that moment, Commander Farragut was ordering the last moorings to be cast loose which held the Abraham Lincoln to the pier of Brooklyn. So in a quarter of an hour, perhaps less, the frigate would have sailed without me. I should have missed this extraordinary, supernatural, and incredible expedition, the recital of which may well meet with some suspicion. But Commander Farragut would not lose a day nor an hour in scouring the seas in which the animal had been sighted. He sent for the engineer. Is the steam full on? asked he. Yes, sir, replied the engineer. Go ahead, cried Commander Farragut. Chapter 4 Ned Land Captain Farragut was a good seaman, worthy of the frigate he commanded. His vessel and he were one. He was the soul of it. On the question of the monster, there was no doubt in his mind, and he would not allow the existence of the animal to be disputed on board. He believed in it, 
as certain good women believe in the Leviathan, by faith, not by reason. The monster did exist, and he had sworn to rid the seas of it. Either Captain Farragut would kill the narwhal, or the narwhal would kill the captain. There was no third course. The officers on board shared the opinion of their chief. They were ever chatting, discussing, and calculating the various chances of a meeting, watching narrowly the vast surface of the ocean. More than one took up his quarters voluntarily in the cross trees, who would have cursed such a berth under any other circumstances. As long as the sun described its daily course, the rigging was crowded with sailors, whose feet were burnt to such an extent by the heat of the deck as to render it unbearable. Still, the Abraham Lincoln had not yet breasted the suspected waters of the Pacific. As to the ship's company, they desired nothing better than to meet the unicorn, to harpoon it, hoist it on board, and dispatch it. They watched the sea with eager attention. Besides, Captain Farragut had spoken of a certain sum of $2,000 set apart for whoever should first sight the monster. Were he cabin boy, common seaman, or officer. I leave you to judge how eyes were used on board the Abraham Lincoln. For my own part, I was not behind the others, and left to no one my share of daily observations. The frigate might have been called the Argus, for a hundred reasons. Only one amongst us, Conseil, seemed to protest by his indifference against the question which so interested us all, and seemed to be out of keeping with the general enthusiasm on board. I have said that Captain Farragut had carefully provided his ship with every apparatus for catching the gigantic cetacean. No whaler had ever been better armed. We possessed every known engine, from the harpoon thrown by the hand to the barbed arrows of the blunderbuss and the explosive balls of the duck gun. On the forecastle lay the perfection of a breech-loading gun very thick at the breech and very narrow in the bore, the model of which had been in the exhibition of 1867. This precious weapon of American origin could throw with ease a conical projectile of nine pounds to a mean distance of ten miles. Thus, the Abraham Lincoln wanted for no means of destruction. And, what was better still, she had on board 
Ned Land, the Prince of Harpooners. Ned Land was a Canadian with an uncommon quickness of hand, and who knew no equal in his dangerous occupation? Skill, coolness, audacity, and cunning he possessed in a superior degree. And it must be a cunning whale to escape the stroke of his harpoon. Ned Land was about forty years of age. He was a tall man, more than six feet high, strongly built, grave and taciturn, occasionally violent, and very passionate when contradicted. His person attracted attention. But above all the boldness of his look, which gave a singular expression to his face. Who calls himself Canadian calls himself French. And, little communicative as Ned Land was, I must admit that he took a certain liking for me. My nationality drew him to me, no doubt. It was an opportunity for him to talk and for me to hear that old language, which is still in use in some Canadian provinces. The Harpooner's family was originally from Quebec and was already a tribe of hardy fishermen when this town belonged to France. Little by little, Ned Land acquired a taste for chatting, and I loved to hear the recital of his adventures in the polar seas. He related his fishing and his combats with natural poetry of expression. His recital took the form of an epic poem, and I seemed to be listening to a Canadian Homer singing the Iliad of the regions of the North. I am portraying this hardy companion as I really knew him. We are old friends now, united in that unchangeable friendship which is born and cemented amidst extreme dangers. Ah, brave Ned, I ask no more than to live a hundred years longer, that I may have more time to dwell the longer on your memory. Now, what was Ned Land's opinion upon the question of the marine monster? I must admit that he did not believe in the unicorn, and was the only one on board who did not share that universal conviction. He even avoided the subject, which I one day thought it was my duty to press upon him. One magnificent evening, the 30th July, that is to say three weeks after our departure, the frigate was abreast of Cape Blanc, 30 miles to leeward off the coast of Patagonia. We had crossed the Tropic of Capricorn 
and the Straits of Magellan opened up less than 700 miles to the south. Before eight days were over, the Abraham Lincoln would be plowing the waters of the Pacific. Seated on the poop, Ned Land and I were chatting of one thing and another as we looked at this mysterious sea whose great depths had up to this time been inaccessible to the eye of man. I naturally led up the conversation to the giant unicorn and examined the various chances of success or failure of the expedition. But, seeing that Ned Land let me speak without saying too much himself, I pressed him more closely. Well, Ned, said I, is it possible that you are not convinced of the existence of this cetacean that we are following? Have you any particular reason for being so incredulous? The harpooner looked at me fixedly for some moments before answering, struck his broad forehead with his hand, a habit of his, as if to collect himself, and said at last, Perhaps I have, Mr. Aranax. But Ned, you are a whaler by profession, familiar with all the great marine mammalia. You ought to be the last to doubt under such circumstances. That is just what deceives you, Professor, replied Ned. As a whaler, I have followed many a cetacean, harpooned a great number, and killed several. However strong or well-armed they may have been, neither their tails nor their weapons would have been able even to scratch the iron plates of a steamer. But Ned... They tell of ships which the teeth of the narwhal have pierced through and through. Wooden ships, that is possible, replied the Canadian, but I have never seen it done, and until further proof, I deny that whales, cetaceans, or sea unicorns could ever produce the effect you describe. Well, Ned, I repeat it with a conviction resting on the logic of facts. I believe in the existence of a mammal, power fully organized, belonging to the branch of vertebrae, like the whales, the cachalots, or the dolphins, and furnished with a horn of defense of great penetrating power. Eh, said the harpooner shaking his head with the air of a man who would not be convinced. Notice one thing, my worthy Canadian, I resumed, if such an animal is in existence, if it inhabits the depths of the ocean, 
if it frequents the strata lying miles below the surface of the water. It must necessarily possess an organization the strength of which would defy all comparison. And why this powerful organization? demanded Ned. Because it requires incalculable strength to keep oneself in these strata and resist their pressure. Listen to me. Let us admit that the pressure of the atmosphere is represented by the weight of a column of water 32 feet high. In reality, the column of water would be shorter, as we are speaking of seawater, the density of which is greater than that of fresh water. Very well. When you dive, Ned, as many times 32 feet of water as there are above you, so many times does your body bear a pressure equal to that of the atmosphere. That is to say, 15 pounds for each square inch of its surface. It follows, then, that at 320 feet, this pressure equals that of 10 atmospheres. Of 100 atmospheres at 3,200 feet, and of 1,000 atmospheres at 32,000 feet, that is, about 6 miles, which is equivalent to saying that if you could attain this depth in the ocean, each square, three-eighths of an inch of the surface of your body, would bear a pressure of 5,600 pounds. <laughs> My brave Ned, do you know how many square inches you carry on the surface of your body? I have no idea, Mr. Aranax. About 6,500. And as in reality, the atmospheric pressure is about 15 pounds to the square inch. Your 6,500 square inches bear at this moment a pressure of 97,500 pounds. Without my perceiving it, without your perceiving it, and if you are not crushed by such a pressure, it is because the air penetrates the interior of your body with equal pressure. Hence, perfect equilibrium between the interior and exterior pressure, which thus neutralizes each other, and which allows you to bear it without inconvenience. But in the water, it is another thing. Yes, yes, I understand, replied Ned, becoming more attentive. Because the water surrounds me, but does not penetrate. Precisely. So that at 32 feet beneath the surface of the sea, you would undergo a pressure of 97,500 pounds at 320 feet, ten times that pressure at 3,200 feet, a hundred times that pressure. Lastly, 
at 32,000 feet, a thousand times that pressure would be 97,500,000 pounds. That is to say, that you would be flattened as if you had been drawn from the plates of a hydraulic machine. My goodness, exclaimed Ned. Very well, my worthy harpooner. If some vertebrate several hundred yards long and large in proportion can maintain itself in such depths of those whose surface is represented by millions of square inches, that is, by tens of millions of pounds, we must estimate the pressure they undergo. Consider then what must be the resistance of their bony structure and the strength of their organization to withstand such.